our minds and draw us close to you, uh, Lord, as we look at uh, the life of David and so many things that he went through, ups and downs, successes, failures. Uh, Lord, he's just such an inspirational person, uh, God, and I just pray that we would learn from him, specifically in this chapter, uh, how he sees things different than most people see things, and he truly is a a different type of king, Lord. So I pray that you would bless this study tonight, that you'd bless our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Uh, so if you recall, we just finished first Samuel, uh, chapter 31 was the last chapter, uh, in the Tanakh, that's the Hebrew Bible. This is one book. Okay. So it's not separated in two books. Uh, I believe the reason, and I can look into this more, that they separated the two books is basically what they were doing was separating the reign of Saul. Okay. Versus the reign of David. Because we start to get into the reign of David in the second chapter of Second Samuel. But initially this was one big book. It was just Samuel. Okay, so we finished First Samuel chapter uh, 31. And what we saw there was the prophecy that Samuel said. Samuel the prophet. In fact, he said this when he was dead. Okay, uh, he said that Saul was going to die, him and his sons, in this battle against the Philistines. In fact, he said, you and your sons are going to die tomorrow. We see the next day, this battle against the Philistines, just as God said through the prophet Samuel, Saul and his three sons were slain. Now this will open up the door for David to become the king that God has called him to become. But before that happens, we see in Second Samuel chapter 1, that David is going to receive the news that Saul and his sons had died. And you would think, most people, wow, my enemy, the guy's been trying to kill me for so many years, he's dead? Praise God! Not David. That wasn't his perspective. That's not how he looked at it. In fact, we're going to see David mourn and grieve over the death of Saul. David is not like King Saul. He truly is a different type of king. It's the title of this teaching, A Different Type of King. A Different Type of King. If you would with me, Second Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziklag. So we see after the death of Saul, the death of Saul was mentioned in 1 Samuel chapter 31. If you look specifically at verse 5, it says, And when his armor bearer, Saul's armor bearer, saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So David is catching wind of this news that Saul was actually dead. So David... He returns from the slaughter of the Amalekites. Uh, if you recall, uh, another little recap. Uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 29, uh, remember David's wrong turn that he made in 1 Samuel chapter 27 to go live among the Philistines had this trickling effect. And David started making worse and worse and worse decisions. And it all was because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He started raiding villages, killing innocent people, killing women and children, all these different things. And, and it kind of accumulates to this 
this point, this climax where David's put in a situation where he has to go fight his own people on the side of the Philistines. So we see this build up. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 29, in God's sovereignty, he uses the Philistines to redirect David so that he doesn't fight his own people. The Philistines go, why is David and his 600 Hebrew men, uh, why are these guys on our side getting ready to fight Hebrews? They're probably going to turn against us in battle. We don't know what would have happened, but we know God ultimately got David out of that situation. But if you remember after that, in 1 Samuel chapter 30, David was back uh, on his way back home to Ziklag, uh, a land that was given to him from the Philistines, which became a territory of Judah from that point forward. Well, David and his buddies, his uh, army of 600, are on their way back home. And from a distance, they see fire and, 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 and flames and, uh, and smoke. Basically, what had happened was uh, the Amalekites raided Ziklag and took all the women and children and all the people's families. So David pursues God. God says, hey, you're going to go after the Amalekites. You're going to get them. So David does. He obeys. He goes, gets his family back from the Amalekites. He gets all the extra booty, all the abundance of the things that the Amalekites took, and he disperses it to the people of Judah. So that's what's being referenced here when he says, return from the slaughter of the Amalekites. And David stayed two days in Ziklag. Okay, we got to put ourselves in David's shoes for a second. Okay, he knows that this battle is happening, right? He was on the side of the Philistines getting ready to fight the Israelites. Okay, so he goes back home after the battle with the Amalekites and he's just waiting to hear what happened. He doesn't know what happened. All he knows is that the Philistines were getting ready to be uh, to, to get in a fierce battle with his people and he's just waiting. What's going to happen for two days? He's in the unknown there had to be some sort of anxiety, at the very least some anticipation. So it says in verse 2, On the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. So this man on the third day, he comes to David and we see this man, he's basically showing the traditional signs of grieving or mourning. That's why it says here that he had his clothes torn and he had dust on his head. That's what people typically did. I know it's kind of weird, but it's what people typically did. They would tear their clothes and put dust or ash on their head when they were mourning. So David knows that this guy, whoever he is find out in a second doesn't have good news he's not coming to him with good news so he sees this oh my gosh something terrible something horrific has happened in this man he prostrates himself almost like an act of worship to david he's really submitting to david he's showing david you're my authority right now i'm submitting to you i got some news for you and here's the news second samuel chapter one verse three David said to him, where have you come from? So he said, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. Then David said to him, how did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, the people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? 
Then the young man who told him said, As I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear, and indeed the chariots and the horsemen followed hard after him. Now when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? So I answered him, I am an Amalekite. He said to me again, please stand over me and kill me for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. So we see that this Amalekite is claiming to have killed King Saul, okay? He's saying that, hey, Saul was leaning on his spear. He was almost dead. He asked me to finish him off. And so I finished him off. But this leaves us with a problem, a bit of a predicament, right? Because I just read to you in 1 Samuel chapter 31, verse 5, it says Saul was dead. So what's the truth? Was the, did the Amalekite actually finish Saul off or was Saul actually dead and the Amalekite was saying this for some other reason? We talked about this a little bit last week. I told you we'd reference it again this week. In 2 Samuel chapter 4, if you flip over a couple pages, verse 10, David speaking, he says, When someone told me, saying, Look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him and had him uh, executed in Ziklag, the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. So we see the motivations behind the Amalekite and why he's saying this to David. Because he wants some sort of reward. I took out the guy that's been after you. The guy that's been trying to kill you. These were the motives of the Amalekite. It was all about a reward. That's point number one. Check your motives. Check your motives. See, the Amalekite, I believe, was lying. Okay, and we'll talk about both of these views like we did uh, last week. Because what we have referenced in 2 Samuel chapter 1 is the story of the Amalekite. But what we have referenced in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 31 is the narrator inspired by the Spirit telling us what actually happened. Okay, those are two different things. Uh, what someone uh, says happened and what the narrator of the inspired Scripture says happened Two different things. I'm going with the narrator. Okay. So this man, we see he's appearing to have killed King Saul, hoping to get some type of gain for some type of benefit. Considering the route and the belief that I have that he didn't really kill the Amalekite. He was pretending to kill the Amalekite because he wanted a reward. This is a form of hypocrisy. He's pretending to be one way and he's actually a different way. He's pretending to do one thing when he actually didn't even do that thing. Why do we do the things that we do? Is it for some fleshly reward? Is there self-seeking in our hearts? Are we doing things to appear like, hey, this is a good thing. I'm doing this for the glory of God. But in reality, in my heart, it's not for that. It's for some other reason. I want people to notice me. I want people to look at me. I want people to have respect or honor me in some capacity. Hypocrisy is a serious problem. 
especially in the kingdom of God, the church specifically. It's a problem that many people struggle with. This is a problem that the Amalekite struggled with. Essentially, what the Amalekite is doing is he's telling some truth and he's putting his own twist on it. That's a lie. You ever told a story and kind of like, you know, made it seem the fish was a little bigger than it actually was. It was 20 pounds. I'm going to say like 30 pounds, you know, add a little bit. So it makes it more interesting. Why do we do that? It's the man-pleasing thing in us. We want people to think of us as a, a certain way, look at us in a certain light. But if it's not true, what's the point? Paul said in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would no longer be a bondservant of Christ. Paul got it. There are a lot of man-pleasers out there. But it takes a genuineness, a sincerity to truly be a person that's seeking to please God. And had this Amalekite known who he was talking to, if he had known David, then he would know that David is not a man that's motivated by rewards. Okay, We see David make some mistakes and do some things for rewards. But generally speaking, when you look at the rule and reign of David, David primarily makes the decisions that he makes generally for the glory of God and the benefit of his people. He doesn't have the same mind. He doesn't have the same thoughts as this Amalekite. And he's going to let this Amalekite know this. So this is also crucial. The fact that this man is an Amalekite. Okay. And I'm going to give you kind of the other view with this. Say the Amalekite did. Did kill Saul. Okay, let's just go that route. I don't believe that, but let's go that route. There is a very interesting and powerful biblical principle to pull from this. If you recall, back in 1 Samuel chapter 15, God told Saul to kill all the Amalekites. Remember? He said, kill all the Amalekites. Wipe them all out. All of them. Men, women, children, all, even the animals. Wipe them all out. So there's not a remnant remaining. What'd Saul do? He didn't do it. Killed most of them. He saved the king. It appears he saved some other people because there's there are Amalekites still here. So he wasn't fully obedient to God. And it came back to bite him. It came back to haunt him. See, when we aren't fully obedient to God, fully, like 100%, it'll always come back to bite us in the end. Now, in the scriptures, the Amalekites, I've mentioned this before, before uh, a reminder, the Amalekites are a type of the flesh, okay? When I say the flesh, it's that uh, carnal, sinful nature, the, the thing in us that desires um, uh, sin, really, that desires sin that leads to death and destruction. It's that piece of us, that carnal nature that we were born with, the thing that we hate about ourselves because we, we know it's wrong. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 7. I do the things that I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I want to do. Why? What's going on there? There's a battle. That battle is referred to the battle between the flesh and the spirit, which we'll get into in just a second. But I want to point you to Exodus chapter 17 that we can kind of uh, look at um, kind of some of the, the beginning references to the Amalekites and uh, specifically how this relationship between Israel and the Amalekites started. Okay, didn't start on very good terms. Okay, during the Exodus, when the Israelites were leaving Egypt, it says here, 
In Exodus chapter 17, verse 11, says, and so it was, sorry, let's look at verse 8, give you a little context. Now, Amalek came and fought with Israel and Rephidim, and Moses said to Joshua, choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron and her went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it and Aaron and her supported his hands. One on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly uh, blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, the Lord is my banner. For he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So basically before this story, what happened was Amalek, the Amalekites, uh, they were attacking the people in the back of the line of Israel. They were just picking off the weak and the vulnerable. Okay. They were, they were basically bullying them. So God, Hey, you got to fight back with these guys and we see this fight that ends up happening early on in the book of exodus but it's not just a battle it's a picture of a spiritual battle as i mentioned the amalekites are a type of flesh and look what it says in verse 16 because the lord has sworn the lord will have war with amalek God has declared a war on the flesh. Okay, God has declared a war on the flesh in our lives. He's determined to destroy it. In verse 11 it says, And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed, and when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. So the implication here is that Moses was praying. See, this battle is a spiritual battle that we're in. The battle between the flesh and the spirit is a spiritual battle. But we also see in verse 14 that the Lord says to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. God promised to blot out Amalek. God has declared, as I mentioned, a war on the flesh, and he's promised he's going to ultimately destroy the flesh. Okay, It's a process in our life, destroying the flesh, denying the flesh, crucifying the flesh, but there will come a day when Jesus comes back that the flesh will be destroyed completely. It'll utterly be destroyed. And look who is the one that wins this battle in this text, verse 13. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Joshua, the Hebrew for Joshua is Yeshua. You know what that is in the Greek? Jesus, okay? Joshua is a picture of Jesus. It's ultimately going to be Jesus that destroys the flesh. It's Jesus that blots out the flesh forever. So we see these Amalekites that are coming back here in the text in Second Samuel chapter 1, the Lord's declared war on them, but the only reason that they're still here is because Saul didn't do his job. 
He wasn't obedient to what the Lord called him to do. See, if we don't destroy the flesh, then the flesh will destroy us. He calls us to crucify it, to put it to death completely. If we leave just a, a little bit of flesh left, meaning like, well, I like, I have these certain desires for sin that I don't want to get rid of. Can I just like leave these ones? I'll take out these other ones, but these ones I want to keep. Those ones will destroy you. They will. They'll destroy you. That's what the, why the Lord tells us to completely destroy or crucify the flesh. Great lesson. Great principle. However, I believe the Amal- Amalekite is lying. Okay? So, he says this as well. He says that he took the crown and bracelet off King Saul and he's bringing it to David. Now, how would he gotten it? It's likely not fake, okay? He likely actually has the crown and the bracelet. It's not like he stole off some king and is claiming that it was Saul's. Uh, David would have recognized this crown and this bracelet as a servant of Saul. So how did he get a hold of this, okay? Well, he must have, whichever way you go with the story, he must have had an opportunity to grab this off Saul before the the Philistines came. I don't know if he was watching the battle afar, seeing how things were playing themselves, themselves out, and then he saw an opportunity and he ran for it. Nevertheless, he takes these belongings from King Saul as evidence that he killed him. Okay, but it's not technically evidence that he killed him. Second Samuel, anyone could take anything off a dead guy, right? Second Samuel chapter one, verse eleven. Therefore, David took hold of his own clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. This would have, uh, this would seem like good news for most people, right? Uh, again, the, the guy that's been out to kill you for years, the guy that has the position that you're supposed to be in, king of Israel, uh, he's dead. He's gone. Now God's promises can be fulfilled. You can be put in that position, David, as king of Israel. This sounds like great news to anyone who's thinking carnally, but not to David. This wasn't good news. This is horrible news. His king. He still saw Saul as his king. My king is dead along with my best friend in the person of Jonathan. He did not see this as good news. It's crazy because when you look at what Saul did to Jonathan, or sorry, what Saul did to David, he took everything from him. He took his position away from him and his position in the palace. Remember, he was Saul's right-hand man. Kicked him out of the palace. He no longer had uh, the ability to go to the tabernacle to worship God. So basically, he kicked him out of his church. He took his wife away from him. He took his family. He almost put him to death. Like, literally, Saul wreaked havoc on David's life. Saul was absolutely an enemy of David. Yet David still loved Saul to the very end, to Saul's death. And we see a sincere love in David for Saul. This is the love that Jesus teaches us about in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, when he tells us to love our enemies. Do good to those who harm you. Bless those who curse you. What? Like, is this real? Like, how can you possibly do it? You look at one of those scriptures, how does that actually happen? But we see that Jesus wasn't the only one that did that. David did that as well. It is possible to love our enemies. Now, 
that doesn't mean that you're going to always have a warm, fuzzy feeling towards your enemies, okay? And the people that harm you, right? When we look at love in the Bible, it's not necessarily an emotion, it's an action. It's a choice. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 what love does, okay? Love is a choice. Love is an action, whether you feel like it or not, and that's what Jesus did. Yes, Jesus had a heart of love for his enemies, but he chose to love his enemies. He chose to love us. How? By dying on the cross. David, as a picture of Jesus, a type of Christ, he shows a very similar love, the guy that took everything from him. He loves him and respects him to the very end. So, not only is he mourning, it also says this. I'll just reread verse 12. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Now these two verses, 11 and 12, are really the pivotal verses of this text, okay? Uh, you would think, okay, if you were reading this without knowing the story, you would basically think, uh, if, after you read the whole chapter and you see uh, how the Amalekite gets slaughtered, don't want to ruin it for you, but we'll get there in a second. When you read the story, these, these uh, verses seem a little misplaced. It seems like this is how the story would go. Okay, this Amalekite says, I've killed the Lord's anointed, I've killed Saul, and what does David do? He slaughters him. He just kills the Amalekite for his actions. But there's this gap here that David actually takes time to grieve and mourn. What is he mourning? He lost his king. He lost his best friend. But he's also mourning for the fallen state of Israel. The whole nation is in a fallen state. This is point number two. Grieve for the fallen. Grieve for the fallen. This was uh, an absolute uh, <clears throat> horrific time for Israel. They lose their king. They, they lose his whole lineage, basically. We'll see one son left in the next chapter. But the point is, is that everything seems lost. Everything seems hopeless. Israel has no hope. They're in a complete fallen state. And David... He grieves over that fallen state. He mourns over their fallen state. This reminds me of another man that mourned over the fallen state of his people. In fact, he was known as a mourner, known as the weeping prophet. In Jeremiah chapter 8, in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 18, Jeremiah says, I would comfort myself in sorrow. My heart is faint in me. Listen, the voice, the cry of the daughter of my people from a far country is not the Lord in Zion, is not her king in her. Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images, with foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the hunt of the daughter of my people, or for the hurt of the daughter of my people, I am hurt. I am mourning. Astonishment has taken hold of me. Is there no bomb in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? You know why Jeremiah is mourning? Because his people, God's people, have turned their backs on God. 
They're worshiping idols and they're not worshiping God. Wait a minute. Don't you know there's a physician in Israel? Don't you know our God is the great physician? Yet you won't turn to him and you'll never be healed because you won't in humility submit yourself to the living God. You keep doing things your own way and it's bringing the whole nation to destruction. So Jeremiah, he mourns because of this fallen state. Do you mourn? Over the fallen state of people. Do you mourn over the fallen state of our country? Like it just keeps getting worse and worse. Obviously we had the shooting in Broward County. That's right by home for me. Uh, Actually I know uh, the sheriff has had a a bad rep. And I won't speak personally into that. But he's uh, a friend of mine's dad. Uh, So this is close. um, Close to home. But you look at this stuff, that's not the only place that this is happening. When you look back from 2012, there's been 239 school shootings. 239 school shootings. On average, each year, there's about 40 to 50 million babies that are aborted, that are literally murdered, okay? Literally. The killing in this country is running rampant. People keep getting further and further away from God's truth, from God's moral standard. This isn't a new thing. This has happened throughout all of history. Every single nation has done it. They've rebelled against God in some fashion, some way. In fact, as we mentioned, the Israelites did it. And you know what always happens? God ends up judging the nation. He always ends up judging the nation. The further and further our nation gets away from the things of God. I know there's a lot of good people trying to help and get us back on the right track. But history would tell us we're going to keep getting further away as time plays out. And I don't know if that judgment is going to be when the Lord comes back, great tribulation, all of that. Or it'll be something else. But the point is, Just as David grieved over the fallen state of Israel, we should grieve over the fallen state of our nation, over the fallen state of of our enemies, of the fallen state of our friends, of our family family members. This was something that, that David took seriously. He grieved, he mourned because of the fallen state of people. Now, on another note, the throne was finally vacant. God could finally fulfill his promise to David. Now there was an opportunity for David to become the king. But that's not what David's focused on. David's not even probably thinking about that at all. There's no indication in the text that he's thinking about that stuff. He's thinking about the fallen state of his people. He's not seeking position. He's mourning over his country. The text goes on, 2 Samuel chapter 1. Verse 13, then David said to the young man who told him, where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien and a Malachite. So David said to him, how was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Basically, as David is saying, how come you could justify doing what you did when I couldn't justify doing it? Meaning, David, if anybody had a legitimate reason to kill King Saul, it was David, right? And he had two chances to do it easily. 
no problem in the cave. And then again, uh, when he entered into the camp and he took his jug and his spear, he could have killed uh, Saul so easily, yet he didn't. So he asked this man, how can you essentially justify killing or slaying the Lord's anointed? See, the Amalekite wrongfully assumed that David followed the same principles that he did. Hey, however we can make it to the top, who cares who we have to burn to get there? However we can get our reward, I'm worried about number one. I'm worried about self and that's it. The Amalekite wrongfully assumes that David follows these principles, but that's not the type of person David is. See, David is a man that fears God when this Amalekite did not fear God. That's point number three, fear God. Simple, fear God. And that's what David says to him. In verse 14 again, it says, How was it that you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? He's not talking about being afraid of Israel or the army. He's talking about, this is the Lord's anointed. How are you not afraid to slay that which was God's? He put him in that position. You weren't afraid of God. You weren't afraid of Yahweh. How could you not be afraid? See, the fear of God is an essential character quality that we need to have. And this is a character quality that David had. See, it's the only thing in the Bible that we're supposed to fear. The only thing. We're not supposed to fear anything other than God. But God, we are called to fear. It is good to have a healthy fear of God. I want to understand this and unpack this a little bit better with a few scripture references so that we can understand what the fear of God actually is. See, Jesus himself even told us, yes, fear God the Father. In Luke chapter 12, verse 4, in Luke chapter 12, verse 4, he says, and I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body don't even be afraid of someone who can kill you okay so like sometimes i get afraid like man if somebody killed me that would like i think about it all the time it's like someone came to the house what would i do you know all that They're like oh yeah that would make me afraid a little bit right this guy's trying to kill me hopefully spirit would give me the power to be able to just take it whatever the case may be but jesus says don't be afraid of that don't be afraid of someone killing you he says And after that, have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has the power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Or in other words, don't fear the person that isn't sovereign. Fear the one that is. Fear the one that is sovereign. That doesn't just have power over your body. He has power over your soul. Where your soul goes. Whether it be heaven or hell. So what does it mean to fear God? I'll give you a couple more verses if you want to write these down. If you're taking notes. In Proverbs chapter 8 verse 3. It says the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. So I have the fear of the Lord. I hate everything that is evil. He also says in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, he says, fear God and keep his commandments. We see the fear of God. Not only am I going to hate evil, but I'm going to 
I'm going to follow his commandments. It's going to lead me to obedience. If I'm fearing the Lord, I'm going to do what the Lord is asking me to do. Now we see some of these practical principles that come into play, these verses that we mentioned to help us understand, okay, so I'm going to walk away from evil. I'm going to do what is good. What is good. If I fear God, I'm not going to do what's evil because God isn't evil. I'm going to do what's good because God is good. But there's another type of fear the Bible talks about when it comes to the fear of the Lord. When you look at scenarios when people come face to face, if you will, with the living God, you know what happens to them? They feel like they're going to die. Okay? In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah, he beholds the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and he says, I'm undone, I'm unclean. Basically saying, I'm going to die. Wait a minute, I'm a sinner, you're holy, I should be dead right now. By the grace of God, he didn't die. Then in Revelation chapter 1, we see John, the apostle, he encounters Jesus in his glorified state, who's also God. He encounters Jesus on the island of Patmos, and it says he fell on his face as if he was dead. Okay? John thought he was going to die. When we look at that, when people encounter the living God, they literally feel like they're going to die. Why? Because we're sinful and he's holy. We recognize in that moment that we are not entitled to his presence. We are not entitled to his presence. We have no business being in fellowship with a perfectly holy God. We absolutely don't. I think if any of us saw God for who he actually was, we'd never sin again. We would never sin again. We would be so stricken with fear. We would, we would be marveling. We would fall on our faces if we were dead. And every time we got back up, we wouldn't walk in sin any longer. This is what we see with the fear of God. The fear of God is recognizing who He is and who we aren't. He is holy. I'm unholy. It's believing in his ability to take your life at any moment. You actually think about that. Like God could actually take my life any moment. I think about this all the time. Every single day that I drive up and down the mountain, both sides, I pray. Lord, it's just my tires are getting a little, I need to change my tires. So I'm already like, dude, it's going to be one of these days. I'm running around these corners and shoop, fly off the side of the mountain. So every day it's like, Lord, I know <laughs> it wouldn't take anything for you to flat tire me gone. Okay. So I, I want to still live. Yes, I want to be with you, but I think I still have some things to do here on the earth. I recognize you could take my life at any moment. It's remembering this. It's reflecting on this. He truly can. Do you believe that he can? Do you live your life like he can? And I'm not talking about being afraid to die. Okay. It's not about being afraid to die. It's being afraid uh, in the sense of respect and honor and reverence for God. It's respecting his power and not taking advantage of his grace. It's like, man, I know who you are. It's interesting, uh, back in Luke chapter 11, when Jesus was talking about the fear of God, after that, he talks about how God knows uh, the amount of hairs on our head. He knows when a sparrow falls. What's the point? He's basically saying, hey, uh, fear God because of what he can do, but also recognize what God won't do because he loves you. There's a reality there. We fear a God. Yes, he could do this, but he loves me so much. There's so many things that he's not going to do to me because he loves me, but I'm not going to take advantage of that, or at least I shouldn't. This is what it means to fear God. See, it was the fear of God that governed David in 1 Samuel chapter 24 and 26, 
What I'm referring to is when he had those chances to kill King Saul. It was the fear of God. It wasn't David just saying, oh, I think I'm going to do the right thing. It was, no, oh my gosh, no, I cannot slay the Lord's anointed. That's not my place. I fear God. Who's to say if I don't slay him, God just strikes me dead right there. I'm not going to mess with the Lord's anointed. He had the fear of the Lord. And this is what David's pointing out with the Amalekite. You don't have the fear of God. How would you not fear slain the Lord's anointed? David then as one of his guys, execute this man. And look what he says to him back in verse 16. He says, so David said to him, your blood is on your own head for your own mouth has testified against you saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. He very likely died, not because of something he did, something he said, right? Because he likely didn't do this. He likely didn't kill King Saul. Imagine that, like what a lesson on lying, right? Like lying could actually cost you your life. This is what happened. A lie cost this man his life. He says, your mouth testifies against you. Fourth and final point, watch your mouth. Watch your mouth in all sincerity. God doesn't play games with the things that come out of our mouth. Jesus taught on this on a regular basis. In Matthew chapter 15, Matthew chapter 15, so uh, the, the religious leaders are basically calling the disciples out to Jesus, telling on them, saying, hey, why, why don't your guys wash their hands before they eat? Isn't that one of the ceremonial cleansings that are supposed to take place? And Jesus says in verse 11, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. It's not what comes in, it comes out. Why? Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, meaning the words that we say are really rooted in what's in our hearts. And sometimes things come out of your mouth. And you're like, oh my gosh, where'd that come from? It came from your heart. That's what the Bible says. That thing was in there somewhere. I know you didn't like mean to curse like that or lash out like that, but that thing started in your heart. It didn't just come out of your mouth. It started somewhere. It was rooted in your heart. That's why God holds us accountable to the things that we say. Because it's not just about what we say. What we say is directly connected to what's in our heart. That's why Jesus takes this so seriously. And he takes it so seriously. If you flip back to Luke chapter 12. In Luke chapter 12. The Lord tells us. That we're going to be held accountable. At the judgment. To the things that come out of our mouths. In Luke chapter 12, verse 2, it says, For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. I had another reference here. I can't uh, find it. Uh, But Jesus also teaches us that the things that we say we're held accountable to, not just the things that we do, but the things that we say. Again, because it's rooted in our hearts. David says, hey, you're dying because of what you said. Okay, Your, your own words testify against you. And then 2 Samuel chapter 1, Verse 17. Then David lamented 
with the lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. And he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of Bo. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. So a lament is a formal expression of grief or distress, one that can be written down, read, learned, practiced, or repeated. Okay, this is typically something that would be written down. We have the book of Lamentations. Okay, that's Jeremiah mourning over Israel. It's just as heartfelt. Uh, this is actually a, a really uh, neat thing, and I think something that we can really pull a practical principle from. Uh, David didn't just mourn or grieve. He wrote this stuff down. He put words to it. Why? You think about it. Uh, when we just mourn or grieve or vent, like that's a good thing. We're supposed to do it. But when we put pen to paper, now we're kind of bringing our minds into it more. We're thinking about what we're saying. We're communicating uh, more clearly, maybe. This is a great way to mourn. It's a great way to grieve, to write these things down. In fact, this is one of the reasons why I journal a lot of my prayers. It makes me think more. Sometimes I'll pray in the morning if I'm just like talking to God or speaking in my head. Like one minute I'm talking to God and the next minute I'm thinking about what I'm going to eat in a couple minutes. You know, it's like it's distracting. But if I like sit down and focus and I'm writing this down, guess what I don't think about? Anything other than what I'm writing down. And this is the idea about writing a lament. Okay, uh, this is a, a grieving process where there's a lot of thought into it so that you can focus on it. This is what David is doing here. So he writes this song, the song of of Bo, and he wanted the children, it says in verse 18, to know this, to teach the children. Now, traditionally, when they were taught things, they often memorized stuff. He wanted them to hold these things near and dear to their heart. Why? Why would he want them to know these things? Because the children of Judah one day are going to be warriors too. And they want to remember. He wants them to remember what happened during this battle with the Philistines. Remember what happened to King Saul. Remember what the Philistines did. He wanted to use this lament as a form of motivation. He says, I want you to remember this. Know this. So next battle that comes with the Philistines, you remember what they did so we can get them back. We also see in verse 18... That this was written in the book of Jasher. Okay, Jasher is also uh, mentioned in Joshua chapter 10 verse 13. It's mentioned a couple times. Uh, basically this was believed to be um, some poetic book that the ancient Hebrews had. So then people, I was actually talking to somebody about this a couple weeks ago. So wait a minute, is Jasher supposed to be in the Bible? And we don't have the book of Jasher? And, 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 and someone lost it? There's no indication that the book was inspired. Okay. Uh, everything that godly people wrote down uh, doesn't mean that those things were inspired. There's specific credentials uh, to, for a book to be inspired. Uh, we don't have time to talk about all that, but there are other books that are referenced in the Bible, the Assumption of Moses, uh, the book of Enoch. There is even quotes from these specific things. The Bible that we have, not only is it inspired of, by God, but it's complete. It's complete. It's everything that we need. There are other books got the Acts of Thomas and the Gospel of Thomas and uh, the Acts of Peter. And, and you can look at some of these other books and books in the Apocrypha. You got the Maccabees. You got all kinds of different books. And we can look at those books. Well, what's up with these books? Why can't we read these books? Are these books inspired by God? Well, no, they're not. Uh, some of them, you can get a lot of good historical information like the Maccabees. Study it. 
Literally. It helps you understand what happened in the 400 years of silence uh, between Malachi and Matthew. There's some good information in there to help us understand, to also help us understand why it's not inspired, because there wasn't a prophet in the land. And there are other books that are just straight heretical. They, they sell a different picture of Jesus, a different Jesus, a Gnostic version of Jesus. The point is, you've got to know what you're reading, okay? The, the Bible that we have, it's perfect, it's complete. Yeah, there are other sources to read to try to fill in the gaps to understand history a little bit better. But remember what John says at the end of Revelation uh, in the last few verses. He says, uh, there's a curse for anyone that adds anything to this book, okay? God knew Revelation would be the last book in the Bible, okay? It only applies to Revelation. Uh, I don't believe that to be true okay god knew where it would sit in the canon of scripture and the order that it was you got to be super careful with some of the other books and i've read some of these other books so i'm not saying never look at them you'll be cursed just know what you're reading um so uh this book of jasher is uh Again, a poetic book, and this is where we'll end. We'll get through this real quick. The Song of Bo, verse 19. The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places, how the mighty have fallen. The beauty of Israel, he's specifically speaking of Saul, and he says, how the mighty have fallen. This song shows that uh, that David's mourning, his grief was sincere. Like, dude, it's like he's crying out to God. He's writing this song. Like, it wasn't just something to appear spiritual. Like, he truly was saddened by the fact that his king was slain. First Samuel chapter 1. Verse 20, tell it not in Gath, listen to what it says, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. So we see these places mentioned, uh, the, the area of the Philistines, we see Gath mentioned David, he had some shame associated with these places. Think about it. David's writing this thing down. What do you think he's thinking? Dude. I had a chance to be on the side of Israel. What if I could have done something? What if I could have protected King Saul? What if I could have protected Jonathan? But instead, I was messing around with the Philistines. I was hanging out with the Philistines. What if? So he talks about Gath. He talks about the Philistines. He knew he was in the wrong place. And this is part of his mourning process. 1 Samuel chapter 1. Verse 21, O mountains of Gilboa. Why? Because this is where it happened. And David happened to be on the mountains of Gilboa. You remember, getting ready to fight the Israelites. He was getting ready to fight them. And he left Gilboa because the Philistines kicked him out of the army. So he has shame associated with this as well. Let there be no dew, verse 21, nor rain upon you, nor fields of offerings for the shield of the mighty is cast away the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty. The bow of Jonathan did not turn back and the sword of Saul did not return empty. In other words, uh, they went out as soldiers. Uh, Jonathan wasn't afraid. Saul, he wasn't afraid. Their fighting wasn't in vain, if you will. First Samuel, or sorry, second Samuel chapter one, verse 23. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives. Now this is interesting, right? Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant. I get, you know, talking about Jonathan. Jonathan, great dude. But Saul, like, really, he was pleasant. Like, 
the guy that was throwing spear. Maybe he's talking about before the spear throwing thing happened. I don't really know, but this is what he says. Uh, Saul and Jonathan were beloved and, and, and pleasant in their lives. And in their death, they were not divided. Uh, this is interesting. Why is David saying this? Well, uh, Jonathan and Saul, they didn't have like the best father-son relationship, right? Um, there was a time where Saul almost had Jonathan killed for eating honey. Okay, so, so their dynamic is very interesting, right? And then there was the other time when Jonathan sold his dad out for David, sticking up for David. So they have a lot of turmoil in their relationship, but we see that they end up dying side by side. They're no longer divided. The relationship is reconciled in some way. First Samuel chapter 20, or uh, uh, chapter 1 verse 24. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother, Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. Now, a lot of people try to say, oh, they had a homosexual relationship. Okay, there's no indication in Scripture about that. You know what You know what brought them together? You know what the Scripture says brought them together? Their mutual love for God. Okay, that's what brought them together. That's why they were in such good fellowship. Jonathan truly was a, a, a friend that stuck closer than a brother, as the Proverbs say. Jonathan was an amazing friend. He wasn't out for position. He was willing to give the kingdom over to David. He was a different type of of man. Now, we do see David say, hey, uh, this was, uh, this was a better, closer relationship that I could have with a woman. Uh, now, when you look at David and his relationships with women, um, he had probably too many, okay? So David and how he went to, uh, how he chose to go about marriage was, uh, he married a bunch of different women, which obviously wasn't God's plan from the beginning. He said, the two shall become one flesh, okay? And then we learn later that it was uh, God's intent all along for us to have one wife, for a woman to have one husband. So David, having all these wives, probably um, led him to a place where he didn't get as much out of his marriage uh, as he could have. If he just stuck to one woman, like the Bible teaches us. Okay, not that that takes anything away of the type of friend Jonathan was, but David in his love life isn't the example to follow. Okay, let's just put it that way. Second Samuel chapter one, verse 27. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. This is somewhat ironic. David says, how the mighty have fallen. But what's ironic about it? Is Saul, he fell a long time ago. His death was just a byproduct of his fallen state. He's been fallen. It wasn't just an event. It was a lifestyle of not choosing God, of choosing rebellion against God time and time again. So David, he mourns over the loss of this fallen king. As we see, David isn't like King Saul. What do you think would have happened if the roles were reversed? Right? We don't know, you know, cause a lot of problems, right? But if, if, if Saul found out that David died in battle, bet you would, we wouldn't be reading this. We wouldn't be reading something like this. He wouldn't be mourning and grief. Finally, got rid of him, okay? I can keep the kingdom. It'd probably be something like that. 
David truly is a different type of king. Now, we'll see David get anointed as king over Judah first in the next chapter next week. And we're going to see David, he had his ups and downs. He was a man of strength, but a man of of many weaknesses. He had successes, he had failures. But what separated him and what was different about him is that... He continues to be a man after God's own heart. When he messes up, when he screws up, when he completely blows it, he always turns back to God. That's the only thing that separates him. It's not because he's so righteous and he's so holy and he's this perfect type of king. He's a flawed individual that has a heart for God. That's what separates him. And that's what separates us. That's what separates the body of Christ from the rest of the world. It's not because we're better than the world. It's not because we're, we're more righteous or we serve the community or help the widows and the orphans. It's because we have a heart for God. That's the thing that separates us. And that's the thing that made David a different king. Let's pray. Lord, We thank you for this text, this story, uh, Lord of David, and how he responded to the death of his enemy. God, so powerful, so motivational, so challenging. God, uh, would we do that? Would we respond that way? Lord, we also recognize that the only reason he was able to do this is because of his relationship with you. You you truly gave him the love and strength uh, that David needed to, to be the king Uh, to be the leader, to be the son, to be the man that you've called him to be. Lord, I pray that you would give us that same love, that same strength to be all that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.